Take all. I'm Alex Mozed, and I'm super excited to have Fabrice Grinda with us today. Your background and titles are so illustrious, right? You are the co-founder of OLX. You founded multiple other platform businesses prior to that. You're also the founding partner of FJ Labs, one of the leading platform and marketplace investors in the world. Fabrice, thank you so much for joining us today. We're super excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I was just looking at, at the total uh, portfolio count. I think you probably recently crossed a thousand. Uh, I don't know how recently you did, but it looked to me pretty recent. A thousand uh, investments made across you know the different life cycles of, of FJ uh, funds. Is that a milestone that you were tracking? Any any kind of you know strategic significance for you in, in crossing that threshold? No, we we so first of all, yes, we did cross the threshold. We've invested in over a thousand unique companies. So in terms of unique in, of investments, is actually a much larger number of investments because of all the follow-ons. Uh, it's neither a goal nor an ambition. Uh, I think it's more a reflection of my personality. I, I when I meet. People that are trying to solve problems that I care about, I want to back them. And it just so happens that there are many problems in the world. And as a result, there are many people trying to fix all these problems. And I end up being a prolific investor as a result of that. But it's not a it's not a a, a, a strategy in terms of uh, allocation. It's not at all top down. It's completely bottoms up. Yeah, no, it's absolutely bottoms up. But I do think it's reflective of of you know your investment strategy, right? You're, you're marketplace centric. We're going to talk a lot about about that and what that means. You're also an early stage investor, right? So you're placing a lot of a lot of bets, and or not a bets, but you know investments in in founders and, and companies that you like. And then you know it, is that some of the the thesis where you can place a, a wider variety of earlier stage investments and then you know lean in on on the ones that um, you want to take a bigger and bigger position in is is that is that how you think about it? Is that always how you've gone about it? Um, no, it, it really stemmed from how I accidentally became a VC. So as you kind of highlighted or pointed out, I've been a tech founder and CEO for the last 25 years. I built my first big marketplace uh, business in eBay of Europe in back in 98. And by virtue of being a consumer-facing internet CEO throughout these years, a lot of other founders would approach me and say, hey, can you invest in my startup? And I thought long and hard, should I be a, an investor alongside being a, a founder and a CEO? Is it a violation of my mandate? Is it a distraction? And ultimately, I argued with myself, articulated the following thought that A, if I can articulate lessons learned with others, it makes me a better founder. B, if I can meet extraordinary founders and hear what they're doing, it keeps my fingers on the pulse of the market and makes me a better founder. And three, so it's okay to do it as long as it's not distracting, as long as it doesn't take too much time. And so I started by deciding I'm only going to do network effect businesses and marketplaces because those are the things I understand uniquely and innately. A, it's what I'm building. B, it's also what I studied in, in college, in market design and as an economics major. And um, I just integrate a process by which I'm going to be able to decide extremely quickly if, if I invest in startups. And so I became an angel. And maybe became a super angel because of the volume and by 2013 at over 150 investments. It just turned out that when I left OLX, I was like, you know, like building companies, like investing in companies. I partnered with uh, my co-founder at FJ Labs and we created, frankly, a family office for us. And that started attracting the interests of other people interested in marketplaces. And we said, hey, can we invest with you? And that led us to becoming a VC. And so it's just a continuation 
of the angel strategy I was applying that that became a VC fund. But that, that's why I am an accidental VC, but B, I think what we do is angel investing at venture scale, which is part of that ethos of like, we need a lot of extraordinary people. We want to back them because there's so many problems in the world that we want to fix. You're investing in marketplaces all over the spectrum, B2C, product-oriented, service-oriented. Um, you know, Actually, specific- let me add one more point. Uh, so even though it's not a strategy to be prolific, it's not like at the outset. There is a lot of data that suggests that more uh, prolific investors do better. So AngelList has done a lot of studies on what are the, on returns of, of VC funds. And if you invest in all the qualified, and of course, we can define what qualified means, startups, you do better. And the more diversified the portfolio, the higher your long-term IRR. And it's been definitely true for us, right? We're, we've had 300 exits. We've made money in over half of them. And we have a 40% uh, realized IR on, on, on those exits. Um, and diversification actually helps. But again, it's more, it's not the reason we do it. It's the results of what we do. And as you said, it's worked pretty well. I think you're on your, your ninth fund. You're currently deploying out of three or, or four active funds right now. So of real funds that are L- really LP backed, we're fund three. We just raised uh, 290 million in fund three, but we've had a lot of these little angelless mini funds uh, where others have, uh, have invested with us. And on that one, I think we're in ninth or 10th. Uh, and of course, I started angel investing back in 98, so 25 years ago. Um, but yeah, the main funds were at fund three and uh, we're at the beginning of the deployment period. So obviously we, we talk a lot about kind of B2B marketplaces on the show and we've done a top 50 B2B marketplace ranking in the US for two years and we just came out with a top 25 in Europe. No surprise that FJ has actually taken the, the number one spot in terms of backing the most number of startups on those respective rankings uh, for all three versions of that report. It makes complete sense given the, the thesis and, and the way of thinking and how you prioritize those investments. B2B marketplaces is something you've talked in, in past interviews about. Obviously, the firm has been committing real dollars to that space for you know, probably the past handful of years uh, or more. And, and by the way, I'm talking about B2B product marketplaces. FJ is also doing a variety of service marketplaces and, and other kinds of marketplace models. But how do you see, big question, pretty open-ended, but if you think about product marketplaces in, in the B2B segment, you know, where do you think we are in the life cycle? Have, have we kind of entered? Are we, are we kind of out of the first one or two waves of that? Um, are we still in the early, early innings? Like where would you kind of slot us on that time continuum? Yeah, we're at the very beginning of, of B2B marketplaces. The, when you think of uh, all the, uh, the progress is maybe the consumer world. Right now, if you go Amazon and e-commerce in general, they're like 15, 20% of all online purchases. And if you look at all the supply chains for buying products in a B2B way, we're often, at sub, I mean, we're generally at sub 5% penetration, we're most often sub 1% penetration. And that's true in every single vertical, petrochemicals, steel, gravel, uh, the labor that goes into it, uh, apparel, underlying inputs for, for apparel manufacturers. I mean, you name it, penetration of digital is de minimis. We're like day zero. Um, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that because you need to change, uh, you know, the entire supply chain needs to be digitized, including ERP integration, payments, tracking. Uh, you need the suppliers to be in there, et cetera. So it, it's 
but we're at day zero and everything remains to be done. And so that's why even though our firm's focus is marketplaces writ large, the current main area of focus is B2B marketplaces, um, because that's the area where there's the most opportunity. We're at the very beginning of the journey, both in the US and globally. What's interesting about the B2B marketplaces, and you also talk about this, right? Like one of your favorite tricks is, you know, giving away SaaS tools for free, right? To lock in supply or demand or both. Um, you see that a lot with the B2B marketplaces. Are there any, you know, what what tricks do you like when looking at these B2B marketplaces where if you're investing them at a fledgling state, they yeah. may not look anything like a marketplace. That, that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and, and also the piece where they monetize may not be the transaction of the marketplace component. So one of the things that sets these B2B marketplaces apart is usually the average order volumes uh, per order and, and per year are both much, much larger. Uh, there's sometimes, not always, but concentration in one of the two sides of the marketplace, which makes it much harder to have a, an effective take rate. And so it very well may be that the elasticity of, of supply and or demand is such that you can't have a rake, but you maybe monetize through SaaS, or maybe you offer these ancillary services from insurance to factoring to, to, to logistics. Um, or if it's fragmented enough, you can actually take a rake and often ends up being more five to 10% rather than the consumer at 10 to 25%. But that's actually okay given the AOVs, et cetera. And you can still make the unit accounts work. So, you know, there's so many tricks uh, to making these work, but offering a tool to the supply side, sorry, to one of the sides of the marketplace to help them manage their business better and for free, it's definitely one of, one of the key areas. And I can think of many examples, I'll give a few off the top of my head. Uh, Fresha is a uh, hairdresser uh, uh, and barbershop marketplace where you can book online. And they came to the realization that people, especially restaurants, hate open table. They don't want to pay $4 a, a booking for what they consider to be their own customers. And so they're like, you know what? We will not monetize the bookings. You can send as many bookings as you want, and that's totally okay. Um, in, in addition to that, to help you, we're going to give you a tool to manage all the bookings, the people working for you, and all the seats. And we're also giving that to you away for free. We'll take 15% if we bring you a new customer, but actually more importantly, we're also going to help you in the, on, on the payments. And by doing that, they, they accumulated like 50 to 70,000 barbershops around the world. They grew to a volume of billions and billions of annual GMV. And then they went to the payment companies and they were like, hey, how about I bring this payment volume to you? And so they became a very, the way they ended up monetizing is getting an extraordinary deal with Adian sharing part of that discount they got with the barbershops and then making a spread on that. But spread it, even though, you know, we're talking bips here, bips on billions and billions and billions ends up being a very large number. And so these approaches, which are very creative and non-traditional, work extraordinarily well. Yep, love it. I think another one of yours, uh, Grub Market, right, is is providing um, kind of a, a cloud wholesaleware, kind of like cloud ERP, kind of lightweight ERP to uh, to their suppliers in, in that kind of produce distribution space. I think yeah, absolutely. You, you guys are in there, eh? There, there are, I don't know grub market nearly as well, um, but there, there are many like that. Like, so for instance, we're investors in Cheaper. It's a B2B FMCG marketplace. So the local grocery stores uh, want need to find a better way to, well, 
usually through pen and they don't even know their inventory. So they manage their inventory on, on Excel at best, if not pen and paper. They have a whole bunch of supplier relationships. They don't know when they need order, at what price, from whom, what are the payment terms, et cetera. And so cheaper allows them to basically buy all the underlying supplies they need, helps them manage their inventory, gives them better payment terms, and also helps them run their entire back office. So, so that entire thesis of we're going to help you, uh, the B2B small SMB, especially operator, run a better business. So you can focus on things you like to do and we'll do the rest for you is key. So cheaper in Colombia and Mexico is doing it for, uh, for for the bodega owners uh, in the US, uh, Odeco, O-D-E-K-O is an amazing B2B supplier of uh, of coffee grains and beans to the coffee shop owners, allowing them to compete with Starbucks by giving them discounts. But the key here is they have the trust of the coffee store owner to the point they have the keys. So they can go in at night, check the inventory levels, replenish them without actually bothering the, the, the user experience of coffee shop owners or it's slice sliced in the pizza shop space, even though it looks to people as a consumer-facing app, it's really a B2B uh, marketplace. It's helping the Luigi's of the world, of which there was like 50,000, compete with the Domino's of the world by helping them, picking up the phone for them, taking the orders, uh, creating the websites, and, and managing all the back office operations such that you know the Luigi's of the world can make pizza and hang out with their customers. And the people that are running the coffee shops that can be the baristas and, and not be dealing with like admin. People never get into these businesses because they're like, oh, I'm dying to like hire people and do accounting and payroll, et cetera. No, they do it for the love of the product. And so we help them basically do the things they love and take away from them all the things they don't like today. Your probably preferred way of monetization for a marketplace is charging a take rate or a commission of some sort. And you look at B2B marketplaces that their producers, their suppliers could be some mixture of distributors um, or suppliers and manufacturers, right? Are you seeing anything in, in terms of that 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 preference, right? Where, for example, maybe if the if the marketplace is aggregating supply more from the actual manufacturers, they have a greater greater ability to charge a take rate. Or, you know, if they're aggregating supply amongst distributors, that's maybe doesn't reflect as positively, right? Are there kind of cues when you think about quality or caliber of like supply aggregation that then feeds back into how well you think that marketplace could ultimately monetize? The answer is it usually is, is it depends. <laughs> it matters less whether or not you're getting supply from directly from manufacturers versus uh, distributors versus how fragmented is the supplier base, be they uh, distributors or manufacturers, and how commoditized is the product that you're buying. Uh, is it completely fungible or, or, or there's specific, uh, specifications and differences between what's provided by the different parties. And therefore you're more RFQ driven versus, you know, it's just a, a marketplace. You can just say buy and, and you're done. And so the fungibility of the, uh, of, of, uh, the supply and also the transportability matters a lot. And, and, and the, and, and even, the. Um, the, the fragmentation may not matter at a global level, it may matter at actually at a hyper-local level. So if you're a, let me give you an example of a, of a gravel marketplace in Germany called Schutflex. Um, so they, they deliver gravel to construction sites or for building roads, and they're doing a couple hundred million a year in GMV. And there, 
the marketplace because you can basically deliver from the queries to the construction sites or the road building, et cetera, from pretty much anywhere in Germany and anywhere, uh, they can take an effective take rate uh, and, 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 it's, and, it, and it's effective business. So the country's not that large and there are a lot of queries. In the US, you're not going to be shipping gravel from California to New York. And it just so happens that in, let's say, a place like New York, there's going to be a few queries that, are, that maybe it's a duopoly or an oligopoly. So your ability to take take rate is much lower, even though on paper, it looks like a fungible good that's a commodity. And so, you know, as usual, the answer is it depends uh, usually on local market concentration, on concentration on either side of the market for uh, for what you're taking. The more concentrated it is, the lower your ability to take a rake. And then there's some categories where there's much, depending on where the end user margin structure looks like, there may be more or less elasticity of supply and demand. So you typically take your rake on the more inelastic part of the uh, of, of the curve, we did on the buy side of the, uh, or the sell side. Um, but again, we've seen literally everything. Sometimes you charge the buyers, sometimes you charge the sellers, sometimes you charge 1%, sometimes 5 sometimes and sometimes nothing. Uh, and it's one of the things you really, really need to test and think through, think through hard. Yep. Yeah, Shootflix is in our European tab 25. I'm going to get back to value-added services in a second. One of the things that we see a lot of big problems, B2B marketplaces are in a great position to solve across the spectrum of whatever vertical they're in, product data and connectivity. What are you seeing when it comes to, how do you think about those two things, those huge challenges um, and, and, and how marketplaces are positioned to try and solve those? Again, it depends, but more and more what these B2B marketplaces are doing is they're integrating into the ERPs of both the supply side and the demand side such they have access to all the inventory, the, cap the capacity and capabilities of the factory to all the different inputs that are, that are, that, that are related there and creating full transparency from manufacturing all the way to delivery. And, and that's something that hasn't existed. <laughs> Literally, you're ordering timber and, uh, you know, from whatever, a Chinese manufacturer ordering timber from Canada and like new idea, you know, whether they are buying it versus cutting it to the versus like bringing it to the harbor to like shipping it across the, across the, um, the, the Pacific, et cetera. And, like there's no tracking, no payments was opaque. Everything's opaque. There's like 27 intermediaries between uh, buying and delivery. And so all of that is now being unified. So you have one single record and one point of contact, one per one person you can go yell at if, if things are not working. You know, big pain points they can solve there for the industry writ large. Um, you talked about value-added services like payments and net credit terms and logistics. Yeah. Um, it, I don't, but I don't, I don't think that's an area you're investing in. Is there temptation? Because you kind of see all these things that marketplaces naturally can use other other tech partners for that you've thought about investing in that space are you looking to invest in that space or we you would know, invest not if you're if, yeah if you're marketplace adjacent and marketplace supporting we would invest in you uh but it may very well be by the way that the marketplace this is the way they monetize right like so uh and and the way i look at things like factoring it is a marketplace a factoring business is an intermediary between a provider of capital typically a bank and the borrower of capital so to be those types of businesses actually are marketplaces in their own right um, and, and may very well be the way the, the way to monetize. So obviously, you need to be very smart about like who you're sending credit terms to. And you know, if it's Coca-Cola, they're going to pay, right? If it's like, you know, small, 
SMB somewhere that may have a higher default rate than you expect, especially in, in a recession, uh, that may change. But no, we we would totally be open to investing in these businesses. Kind of like a pseudo corollary to a take rate, right? Because you can make margin Correct. tied to GMV, but it's not it's not a hard and fast take rate. Yeah. And by the way, many of the businesses are monetizing through advertising. Uh, so one of our most successful uh, marketplaces, or, or which is Provi, is a B2B distribution marketplace for alcohol. And the take rate, the effective take rate, when you look at all the revenue sources, is pretty high, but a big chunk of that is just from like the the, the Diageos or whatever, the, the, the liquor companies of the world paying for placement and visibility. And many markets, this is clearly a mega trend for 2023 and the 2020s writ large, it's marketplaces monetizing through advertising and built-in advertising within the marketplace, right? Amazon now generates billions of years in revenue and that revenue is 95% gross margin. So it's an amazing monetization channel. It doesn't work in every category, but for instance, for Pro-V and, and alcohol, it works extremely well. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. Obviously, g- given where market conditions are, I've heard from multiple, uh, you know, Pro-V's in our top 50. I've heard from multiple uh, CEOs in our top 50 that, you know, they're actually putting less of an emphasis on GMV growth and more of an emphasis on monetization. And oh, how are they sure. going to monetize by by doing more value added services and 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 doing more of that kind of end to end transaction? You're seeing the similar. Or what do you see? Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly we're in a bear market for market for startups writ large. The funding environment is completely dried up, and in the fear versus greed toggle, everyone is on fear. Uh, everyone's trying to extend runway and there are two ways to extend runway. Typically you do an extension of the last round to grow into your valuation and grow into the numbers for the next round. So the, 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 the extension flat to the last round is a new up round. And two, of course, you monetize and you try to increase your, your net contribution margin, which goes directly to their bottom line and decrease your burn. And so everyone's focused now in a very healthy way on union economics, on burn, on monetization, on, you know, net effective uh, take rate, and I don't mean take rate, just whatever, overall revenue is divided by your GMV. And it doesn't matter whether it's an, an ex- explicit take rate or if it's monetizing through advertising or other value-added services. Question for you on e-procurement. Um, and there's kind of this like e-procurement 2.0 wave uh, pretty far along in construction. You know, a lot of the SaaS tools for like construction contractors, um, they give them a SaaS tool to run their business are yep. now starting to do e-procurement and then also then trying to become a marketplace. Yeah. Do you see e-procurement as just kind of a, just the same extension of like getting to marketplace? Do you view it differently when you think about that business buyer um, and what e-procurement means for marketplace investing or a- any thoughts there? Uh, not to me, it just fits in that in general category of things that are happening will continue to happen and leads to these digital online and B2B marketplaces. Yeah, it seems like they do e-procurement with a few suppliers and then they ultimately want to integrate with a lot of suppliers and kind of go on that marketplace journey. Any other trends you see um, that that are kind of uh, uh, top priorities for you in in the world of B2B marketplaces? So so B2B marketplaces is not just product marketplaces. So we're seeing this happen in everything. We're seeing it, I mean, obviously, the when, when I described Russia earlier, 
It's actually a consumer-facing booking marketplace. It just so happens to be B2B monetization and tool. Uh, we're investors in a lot of B2B labor marketplaces. Uh, so uh, companies, companies like Trusted, which are uh, nurses, or companies uh, like RigUp, which um, uh, which are doing oil services workers. Um, so, and we're seeing it in every major vertical. We're seeing it in yeah B2B services writ large as well. So it's a mega trend, but yeah. We, for us, uh, all categories are interesting, uh, be they products, uh, labor, or services. Uh, and in all of them, we're just at the beginning of the journey. And, and But here's a few things, I guess, that are probably interesting. We are reasonably unique. Most people are not nearly as interested in these B2B marketplaces as we are. Uh, they're, they're not the shiny new, new thing of the month. You know, uh, you know, probably the AI, generative AI is probably at the top of uh, uh, the hype cycle right now, whereas B2B marketplaces, as important as they are, because they are so fundamentally deflationary, which is extraordinarily useful in today's inflationary world and making the world a better place, um, are, are, are probably much less loved. A few nuances I think I'd say we're seeing is the difference between the B2B marketplaces and, and other businesses is the profile of the founders is pretty, pretty different. It's usually founders in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who've been in the category or industry for a long time, who felt the pain point, and who have that buy-in and credibility from the industry to actually affect change and convince people to change. And that's why you know, we're investors in Node, or Node, which is a petrochemicals marketplace where the, the executive had been the category for years, or, or in Rebus, the steel marketplace, where the, the founder had bought a billion dollars worth of steel prior to building this and really understood the pain points and knew how to fix them. It's not, it's not a 21-year-old computer science major out of Stanford. Uh, that that profile is less common here. Um, and it's also probably, you know, as a result, maybe less sexy for most. Uh, you're solving, you know, deep ingrained supply chain problems. Uh, but I think there's extraordinary amounts of value to be unlocked here. These categories are ginormous. You know, Patrick Rolls is like a trillion dollars or more. Uh, steel is hundreds of billions. And that's true of almost every one of these categories tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of, of GMV to be, to be had. Right there with you. And all those are actually also in the top 50. Um, <laughs> so you guys have done a pretty good job here. Um, you know, I think we have covered a lot of topics. We'd love to have you back. Um, any, any, any recent investments in the space that you think we should be taking a look at that maybe, you know, haven't gotten to the maturity of, of some of the names you've mentioned so far? Absolutely. Two companies that come to mind in uh, B2B product marketplaces that you would love are Nitex and Ziad. Uh, Nitex is a uh, Bangladesh uh, garment sourcing uh, marketplace for DDC brands and big apparel manufacturers and Ziad and they're, and they're in they're in Bangladesh and Turkey, et cetera. And Ziad, Z-Y-O-D is the same thing out of India. Uh, and so it falls, uh, falls in the offshoring out of China uh, strategy. And they're both fantastic founders, fantastic businesses, still early in their path. And Nitex is much further along. Um, maybe they're at, I don't know, 10, 20 million GMV, the other one a couple million GMV, but early still in their in their journey and, and, and extraordinary ideas. Awesome. Well, uh, it's really an honor to have you with us, Fabrice. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom. Uh, you've done tremendous things. And, and I think bringing a spotlight to this space, couldn't agree more with, with I think, pretty much everything you said today, uh, which is actually very rare on the show. Thank you so much for joining us and, um, and be well. Continue to 
have success in all these verticals. I think you're, you're spot on. So thank you. Thank you for having me.